Hey everyone, it's your boy Captain Hunter coming at you again. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. So to, in today's episode, we got a good one for you today. We're going to be looking at the change in leadership in between or with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, a partnership that I am a part of, a group that I'm a part of, and uh, do some speaking engagements for them and things like that. So uh, we're going to take a look at the directions that they're going in and where they plan to do and where they plan to go in the future and all that. So retired Lieutenant Diane Goldstein is going to be taking over for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So we're going to have a nice conversation with her about the direction of that particular organization, as well as making sure that we take a look at uh, just the direction of law enforcement overall. This is Diane's uh, second time being on Captain Hunter's podcast. Make sure you take a listen to uh, the previous episode and that's in the archives. And uh, here we go. Here's the episode interview with uh, the new direction for Law Enforcement Action Partnership. How's everything? I, I'm getting over that. You know, you, you have the, the sniffles or you think you're dying from COVID, right? It's either one, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, I just ended up with a uh, uh, sinus infection that went down to my lungs. So I oh, wow. ended up, yeah, so I ended up going to, uh, we have a real good urgent care here that you can schedule appointments online and then they call you and say start driving in and then you literally sit in the lobby for five minutes and then they put you in a room oh see that's awesome that's the way i mean some of the stuff from covid has really been a blessing it's really yeah. been you know some i mean i know it's been it, it, sometimes I, I sit around thinking why didn't we do this before you know why was oh, this yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. why yeah. did it take a mass pandemic to get us to be smart about 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 stuff I've gone to the doctor, you know, I've had some eye problems and everything. And before I would sit there in the lobby for, for an hour and a half. And now I go in there and say, I'm in and out. Yeah. <laughs> so why, why, what changed, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think COVID in, um, although all of us have lost almost nearly a year out of our lives. And thank goodness, you know, we're blessed. We have pensions, we have home, we don't, you know, we don't have those issues. Uh, that a lot of other people are struggling with relative to worrying about where money's coming in. Um, but it's, I think in many aspects that there's going to be some, I, and I'm hoping some positive changes, including even at the, the law enforcement level, you know, but we can talk about it. So anyway, we're good. Okay. Well, you were on a roll there, so I was yeah, going to yeah, let yeah, you yeah. go. So, uh, all right. So, well, welcome back, Lieutenant Diane Goldstein. Thank you so much. New uh, chair. What are we calling ourselves? Executive chair? What, what's your title? It's going to be the executive director. <laughs> executive so, director. So, so I'm moving from the chair of the board of directors to the executive director, which is really a paid position. So, I'm now at the mercy of the board of directors for uh, making certain the organization is, is funded uh, and implementing our uh, new strategic plan that we've been working on for the last year or so. Very good, very good. Uh, so uh, Brother Neil uh, stepped down 
I guess he's going to retire again for the second time or so from his you know, law enforcement and now from the leap position. Um, so why don't you just explain to us, to the audience, I mean, we've done this before, but what leap is and uh, what you're, I mean, you explained a little bit about your new role, but just go into a little bit deeper. For us. Sure. Law Enforcement Action Partnership was a, a organization that uh, was founded back in 2002 under a single uh, focus on ending the failed drug war. And about three years ago, we recognized because we had a lot of active duty police chiefs or police officers or district attorneys who were contacting us for advice and basically saying, hey, we'd love to work with you, but we can't speak out about drug legalization. And so we recognized the opportunity and changed the name to Law Enforcement Action Partnership in order to capture those internal voices of reform that I think are really, really critical for changing the system completely. You know, you can't change a, um, any type of system um, unless you also have support from, from internal actors. And so what we're seeing now, and especially I think that the last time I was, I was on was um, post Ahmed Arbery and was it post George Floyd? I think it was post George Floyd, but I, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, in, in this post Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd deaths is we're continuing to capture this really, really critical voices of criminal justice reformers from both the inside and the outside who long recognized that our policies are rooted in, you know, systemic racism, uh, failed drug enforcement policies, uh, policies that ask law enforcement to do too much. I mean, you know, you, you were a captain, you retired as a captain is I think about all the calls in the middle of the night that we used to get, you know, as a, as a watch commander and then as a Lieutenant that I would just sit there and go, my gosh, we shouldn't be sending out an officer to this call. We should have 24-hour social service or social workers that have access to mental health treatment, housing, and other wraparound services to better treat people than the jail cell. I remember being a patrolman <clears throat> right before I got promoted to sergeant, and uh, we were, um, you know, as we were first responders, you know, that meaning that we responded to uh, medical calls as well. And I can remember it was like two or three in the morning, you know, it's, it was really slow, and I just wasn't feeling it. And then they they dispatched me to someone with a broken arm, and they said code three. I'm like, <clears throat> okay. Code three to a broken arm. I actually got in trouble for that. So, like my sergeant said, said over the, you know, he called me up after, like, what, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, I'm sorry, Sarge. But, but I just, even then, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't articulate the way I am now or the way that you are now. But what, what, what are we doing? It's, what, what are we sending our officers to, you know, speeding through town for somebody who had a broken arm? I mean, it, it could have been, you know, criminal in nature and all that kind of stuff. So I, so I get it. But I just, I agree with you that uh, we're just doing, we're asking our officers to do, to do way too much, to just do way too much. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's the critical question right now that people are grappling with. What are the police for? Mm. And um, it's going to force us to be incredibly introspective 
and to work with people that I think law enforcement hasn't normally wanted to work with, which includes academic researchers. You know, there's a tremendous amount of research out there on what works and what doesn't. And at what point do we adequately fund those resources first? You know, we've been very good about back-end funding, you know, it, it, and, and this has been going on for decades. You know, this is not something new. It is my career started in 1983. And in the 1970s, I remember in high school um, when California um, shut down mental health institutions. And, and part of it was both, you know, from a fiscal perspective. And the other part of it was also from um, focus groups or, or organizations that felt that uh, people who suffered from mental health issues and disabilities shouldn't be locked up in a mental health hospital. And, and I think when we look at policy, we have long focused on policy without adequately funding outcome studies to see if these things work. So, you know, back in the 1970s, if they would have said, okay, we're going to do this five-year experiment of funding mental health treatment programs in the community, but we want an outcome study to see its impact on law enforcement, to actually see, does it save money, um, to see if it works. And if it doesn't, then you have to retool the legislation and find another solution. I think that's the thing we're really good at is we just pour a lot of money into the same thing because that's what we've always done. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the, uh, the opposition. And I read a little bit of your yeah. article here. Let me see if I can pull it up here. Um, I don't know if I can do it or not. I'm kind of, uh, here it is. Uh, so the name of the article is, uh, I'm going to scroll all the way to the top here. Our movement is strongest when we aim high and work in current reality. You talk a little bit about the opposition. Um, and I want to talk, uh, I, I want to delve into that as far as this resistance to to um, the drug war, uh, to ending the drug war, this resistance to ending mass incarceration, this resistance to defunding the police. Um, have you, as chair in the LEAP organization, ever come in contact with other parties from the so-called opposition uh, to, who have said, listen, we don't need to do this. We need to keep continue to lock these people up. Um, what have those conversations been like if you've, if you've ever had them? You know, I've had many of those conversations in the last 10 years, including um, testifying in legislative sessions on bills. And so I'll, I'll give you kind of a clear example. In California, a few years ago, I worked on a civil asset forfeiture reform bill with really some un unlikely partners. So when we were going in to talk to staffers, pre way pre-COVID, when we were going in to talk to staffers, um, and legislators, we had, you know, a member of the Institution for Justice, Heritage Foundation, the ACLU, us, you know, the Drug Policy Alliance, you know, these, these organizations that were spread across the political spectrum. And that was our strength when we went in there to talk to people. But 
the law enforcement opposition to reforming civil asset forfeiture reform was hanging on to the tenets of, you know, civil asset forfeiture reform gives us the ability to stop kingpins, despite the evidence that we showed that the people who money was being seized were always less than $5,000 on an average. We didn't stop. I mean, you know, on occasion you had the, the child for goosenets. Yeah. But 90% of all civil asset forfeiture was not at that level. You, you and, said you, you cut off for a second. The child what? The, Tapa Guzman. No, uh, Tapa Guzman. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. You know, he, he's the exception. You know, on right. occasion, we get a kingpin and we seize all his property. But did it stop the money coming, you know, in or out? Did it stop the drugs coming in or out? Absolutely not. It just created a, a vacuum for leadership. And um, so there's these hardline ideology that the only way to solve people suffering from chronic substance use disorder is by cutting off the supply. And that, you know, people who suffer from chronic substance use disorder need to be forced into a coercive treatment, which we also know it sometimes works, most of the time doesn't. It's, you know, so it's just, I think it's just, honestly, it's self-entrenched interests for civil asset forfeiture reform. We heard the, we're going to lose a lot of money from our law enforcement budget. Mm. It's like, you shouldn't be budgeting on civil asset forfeiture. That's illegal, according to the feds. You can't, you know, supplant your budget. You can only supplement. And um, the other one is the, uh, I think, the stigma associated with um, drug users, you know, law enforcement in particular, not all, but a significant part still looks at people who use drugs in a very stigmatized fashion. I still belong to um, uh, magazines that I can access the um, private comments. And when there's articles that are written that are pro-reform, the stigmatizing language used against the people who use drugs is pretty horrific. And, and if, you know, we were supervising an officer who was saying those things, we would discipline them in our department. But because they're behind a keyboard in an anonymous setting, they're allowed to perpetuate this rhetoric. And, and so it's ideological. I think for many police officers, when I was working on marijuana legalization in California throughout the years, um, they would say, look, you're removing a tool from us. We use the smell of marijuana to go pick people's pockets and to see if they have, you know, other drugs or a gun or they've committed other crimes. And my response to them was, well, that's lazy policing. Law enforcement has to be able to adapt. And, and we've all lost cases in court. If you weren't able to articulate the, the constitutionally sound principles of why you stop someone. And so it's a variety. It's, it's very much a variety of just protecting self-entrenched interests, making people's jobs easier. Yeah. Well, I think that I think <clears throat> your, your last statement there is uh, self-entrenched interest. And I, 
I recently sat on the, on the same panel about marijuana legalization here in Connecticut. There was a you know forum going on here, and that was that was actually on my mind. Is is I know that officers use the smell of marijuana to to get into people's pockets or into their cars. Um, I, I believe that Virginia and Florida, at least two states that I can think of, uh, that have stopped the uh, officers from using the smell of marijuana in in order to do that. So I know that that it is something that officers want as a tool to to further their interest. They, they know they have a bad guy here. So how do we get to them if we can't, you know, use a tool of marijuana? And also there was a, there was a discussion I had up at the, <laughs> up at the state Capitol about uh, the same thing about menthol cigarettes. <laughs> and, and, and one of the persons, one of the uh, state legislatures uh, was like, Oh, you know, officers aren't going to use the smell of marijuana of menthol cigarettes in order to uh, go into their pockets. And he was kind of dismissive of my arguments. And I, I mean, I didn't want to get in an argument with the guy, but I'm like, I'm thinking, do you not know what goes on with marijuana? I mean, it's, it, it, yeah. it'll be the same thing. So if you expand it, marijuana is already illegal. If you expand it to menthol cigarettes, you know, as many states want to do, which is ridiculous in my opinion. <laughs> but but if you exp- if you expand it to that, I mean, you'll you'll have people smoking in their cars, getting 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 pulled over, and getting ran through by by officers who who are smelling. You know, it's just yeah. So the the entrenched interests are, are really really problematic. I want to talk about um, just you know is is there a way to break that stigma? Not 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 the stigma. Is there a way to break those entrenched interests? Right, uh, officers' budgets. Uh, they can be looking at downsizing departments if there's less to do. I think that that's where it comes down to unionization, just not wanting to, to decrease budgets and, and everything like that. Yeah. You know what? It, <clears throat> I think it is a combination of so many different things. And, and, you know, our organization has never shied away from the defund the police discussion mm-hmm. because it doesn't, scare us. I mean, you know, it is from a law enforcement perspective is, is I would strategically start with defunding the drug war. Uh, because I, because I think that, and, and when you get a chance to finish reading this whole article, what's important is, is what people, many people, many activists also, um, kind of fail to acknowledge. So, you know, we're, we're, our organization sometimes is stuck in the middle between, Um, extremes on all sides, you know, whether it's the criminal justice extreme or, or or pure abolitionists, you know, people that really say we don't need prisons, we don't need law enforcement. And what I always try to tell people is, you know, in the absence of human nature changing significantly for the future, (laughs) until, until we can scale up resources properly to minimize the footprint of not just the police, but the entire criminal justice system in our day-to-day lives is we have to be strategic. And this article talks about it. We have to be strategic about how we all work together. And until, uh, and it's going to be an, it's it's not going to be an experiment. It has got to be like a, a very focused, we have to fund money. So you can't abolish police in a day. You can't defund policing in a day. That's not going to happen. If that's a long-term goal, it has to be done strategically, or you will get pushback from the people most marginalized 
and victimized by crime. And so in this article, um, I think it's really important to note that, that I found some great polling. Gallup came out and actually polled uh, the Black community and other people about defund the police. And what we see is even in Black communities that have been horribly marginalized by over-policing, that people in the Black community say, we don't want to abolish police. We don't want to completely defund police. We want good policing. And so if we're going to, and this is, you know, my big focus for the future, I really believe in, you know, the, the term community-led health and safety. That that, that creates stakeholders across our communities that's not just law enforcement you and i know it that that we in law enforcement and you know the courts the da's have long looked as we're the only people that know what works and we've ignored what our communities have wanted in many ways and so we have to create a process and a system that each community and each community may be different in many aspects is going to say, this is what we want our policing resources to be prioritized on. And we don't want them running around after people who possess drugs. We want them going after people who are shooting people, people who are raping people, people who are committing homicide. You know, that's really, and, it, and then if you look at police officers, Every young police officer doesn't want to be out there doing that social work that we do and is a big part of our job. And I, I think it still needs to be a portion of our job. They want to be out there really chasing people who hurt other people. So the question is, how do we invest strategically the resources that are needed to give people the opportunity to not become criminals first? And then how do we implement a system of justice that's restorative in nature that when people make mistakes, because we all do, have the ability for redemption and rehabilitation? Yeah, no, that's, that's well said. You're, and you're absolutely right. People do make mistakes. People do make mistakes and they shouldn't be punished for the rest of their lives. And if we think about the back end of this, um, um, in particular, I was think about this because of the marijuana discussion we had um, <clears throat> on, on the back end of this, you know, you, you tag someone, make them do time for a marijuana possession or whatever. And now they can't get jobs. They can't go get public housing. They can't, you know, do X because they have this stigma over their head about what they did, you know, five years ago and possessing a joint or, or whatever, you know, yep. so, so that, that really does become unfair. So let's speak to, to more of the opposition here. What, what do SWAT teams do if they're not, if they're not um, <laughs> kicking in doors because of drug dealers? And what do, what do uh, you know, how do, um, we talked about the uh, 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 civil asset forfeiture, civil, civil and criminal, uh, you know, where do they get the money from? What, what goes on? What does policing look like absent these tools uh, that people use? Well, I guess the, the question is, from a due process standpoint, should our property be um, taken from us simply based on a, a potential civil issue? Mm. I don't think that criminal 
forfeiture is, but it's based on a conviction. Right. And it's, and it's based on exactly what the criminal justice system is supposed to be. And, and you know, and the, there's also a, another recognition here is, is, let me be say this, let me say this because I want to be very clear. One of the problems with the criminal justice system in its entirety also is the, um, the fees structure related to the criminal justice system. I was just on a, a call where we're working with um, a group. The person who funded this is, you know, suffered from a, a criminal conviction, but it also took him $7,000 to reinstate his driver's license. Mm. And so, you know, it, it's, it's not just the drug war, it's traffic tickets. You know, I, I ended up a few years back after I retired getting some red light camera tickets in California. This was about 10 years ago. And my fine for one red light camera ticket was a thousand dollars. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A thousand dollars with penalty going to, you know, driver education. So the points wouldn't be on my record the whole bit. How does someone who may make a couple thousand dollars in a month afford that? And so what we saw in California, what we're seeing across all the states is, is this fines and fee structure keeps people in poverty because then, and then it perpetuates a different criminalization cycle. So you have low level offenders who may get a traffic ticket, but can't pay it. So then it goes to warrant. So then we arrest them, then they lose their license, then they lose their insurance, but yet they still need to work. Mm. So they're willing in order to put money on the table to feed their family. Yeah. Take the, take the risk. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, so it's a combination, but you know, from, from a SWAT perspective, you know, SWAT teams were never uh, designed to simply be the arm of narcotic search warrants. So um, I, I ran a, our crisis negotiations unit. I started working in it in the 1980s. And, and when I retired in 2004, I was the, the commander of the team. And um, I've done a ton of work I, I, with SWAT teams. I've done a ton of work in um, doing training with the FBI where I team taught you know, the integration of physical and verbal tactics. I think SWAT teams are in fact necessary components of law enforcement. Really the question is, does every small agency need a SWAT team? No. You know, is when you work in a county, in, in, in our county, you know, we had uh, LA County Sheriff's Department that um, trains, that's all they do. And if you have a significant event that really is a barricade or um, you know, a hostage situation, I think we should rely on the experts. And, and you know, yes, I, I think that, that maybe that, you know, there's cross training and there's some other things, but the question is, does every agency need a SWAT team? And I don't think they do. So from the perspective of SWAT teams, what I learned from the really good SWAT teams from LAPD uh, came to our couple of our FBI courses and, um, I did work with LA County sheriffs and even our own SWAT teams and others is that a good SWAT team has the ability to identify that they don't need to 
make a no-knock entry into a situation. You know, that they've properly used their resources and understand, oh my gosh, there's kids in there. We're not going to do an entry. We're going to set up a surveillance and wait till the person comes out. We should be using SWAT teams for violent suspects, for gang members who, who you know, are killing people. But there's still a variety of different ways that you can create an opportunity that minimizes the risk both to the suspect and to the SWAT members who are, who are making entry. Because that's the most dangerous. We've all made entry. I've had plenty of guns pointed at me when I ran our, our narcotics units when SWAT wasn't doing um, entries. And so, you know, that's the question is, should we even be engaging in narcotics enforcement? Or as we move forward towards the sensible regulation of all drugs, we're only focusing on the people who are really the kingpins or really committing violence to protect their assets. Mm. Right, right, right. You talk about uh, pure abolitionists. I mean, it does seem to be a pipe dream. I don't know if I agree with pure abolition, whether it's prisons or obviously the police. But I, I think we need some type of security force. Somebody, somebody has to go get the bad guy. <laughs> you know, um, pure pure abolitionist. Does Leap deal with the uh, police uh, ab- abolition of prisons? And what's your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I, I there's been a lot of academic work done around the issue of abolition and not uh, and I'm not completely familiar with all of it and I think that um, as we you know ideally law enforcement should be working towards the absence of crime I would love if we as humans didn't require law enforcement or the criminal justice system, that we have the capabilities to apply restorative justice and, and, and deal with issues. But I, you know, I don't, I don't see it in our modern era. You know, I'm not saying it's not a noble goal because I think it is a noble goal to try to redeem people. Um, You know, and, and, and so I won't, you know, badmouth grassroots activists or organizations that are working under the defund the police. But I think it scares people. Mm. And, and so how do, how do we effectively explain really to, you know, our law enforcement colleagues, you shouldn't be afraid of defund the police. The union should. Okay. But if we really want to transform and reimagine police, the reallocation of resources will actually make police safer. It, it will actually make our communities safer. And it will allow us, just like, you know, when, when, um, when we've done marijuana legalization, you know, the, the, the opposition has always been is you're never going to eliminate illicit sales of marijuana. And it's like, you're right. We still have moonshiners Mm. in this day and age. That's human nature. But what it does allow you is to develop strategic enforcement plans around people who actually continue to victimize people in some aspects. So in in Colorado, um, initially after legalization, they had people that found the loophole. And so they were 
creating indoor grows of 99 and saying it was medical. And so the anti-marijuana people see legalization doesn't work. And my whole point was, no, we now know those folks are the people that are the bad guys and that we need to go after. And then they close that loophole in order to reduce um, people being able to rely on that, you know, on, well, it says here that I can grow 99 marijuana plants indoors if I'm a medical marijuana uh, provider. So, you know, we, it, and you know what I mean it is we always have to adapt around crime trends, you know, is, is folks are, are really smart. You know, in, in a lot of people, um, especially in the drug trade, you know, and especially at the lower level, are sustenance level drug dealers. And so, you know, we will continue to reduce that by implementing smart public health strategies. Um, you know, th things I think in the future that, that we're going to need to focus on and do and, and what I hope this administration looks at is, you know, as we implement decriminalization, Oregon just had the big ballot initiative that passed that decriminalizes personal possession of drugs under a certain amount. That no coercive drug court, you know, does health assessments and provides grants to organizations to do public health treatment. You know, as each state decides that, that the drug wars failed, this is the direction that we're going, is, is law enforcement is going to have to adapt in order to support what our con constituents want. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that sustenance level drug sales will drop if people are, pro are provided or helped with drug treatment on demand, job education, infrastructure, mental health. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's all so much of our responses to, to low level crime is all about socioeconomic issues. Mm -hmm. And how, how many folks, we've all had the call. We get a call to a store. They caught a mom shoplifting because she needs formula or diapers. How much money out of your personal pocket have you spent on people that you came in contact with at, uh, like that? I know I did. Mm. I know, you know. Yeah, I, 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 bought, I bought the form there a couple of times. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not arresting people for this. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And it, yeah. So, so, you know, all of it is tied in um, hand in hand. And really, when, when you look at it, I mean, you know, law enforcement in many ways is protecting corporate interests. Yeah. Yeah, say that again. Yeah. 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 It is is traffic enforcement. Right. right. You know, it is when we start talking about this, you know, and we don't have to talk about it extensively now, but our community responder report would be really great just to, you know, have you read the report and down the road I'll come back uh, and get Amos Irwin who who helped design the report and wrote it to come in and talk about our vision of a community responder model alternatives to 911. So we don't have to go to, as I jokingly called it, I'm a graveyard officer, you know, young boot, uh, barely off probation. Uh, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have said this on the radio. And I literally got dispatched to a call 
like six in the morning, and they dispatched a backup of, of two cats fighting in a, an apartment. <laughs> I'm at breakfast with my backup, and 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 it's like, hey, I'll handle it. Don't worry about it. You know, I canceled the backup, and I then made the comment: Is that of the human version or the feline version? <laughs> and the sergeant, you know immediately gets on the air, respond to the call, you know, and I get there and I literally had two cats. One was feral that ended up getting into this woman's apartment Mm. and she didn't know what to do. Yeah. And are are those the types of calls we should be responding to? But we're afraid of telling people no. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was our policy. I'm sure it's policy pr- across many, many departments that we respond to anytime someone calls us. I mean, exactly. how many times we, we call, we, we police officer responding to pipes, pipes that burst or here in cold weather, you know, pipes burst, cops are sent, you know, bats in the house. Uh, okay. Yeah. A straight, straight animals got into my, a straight dog got into my house, my apartment. I left it okay <laughs> you know and again if the if the animal control isn't working uh you know it's two in the morning it's us you, you know yeah so it's i i definitely see your point and to your point about the about the uh, traffic tickets i can remember being a young officer and um the same same type of situation that you're that you talk about the thousand dollar ticket is you know you got senior officers who are telling you to pile on a ticket, pile on a ticket, pile on a ticket, mm-hmm. you know, to get them for this, get them for that seatbelt, seat you know, this, this front lights out, you have no front license plate, all this, all this stuff. And I remember the ticket was $345. Now this is back in, I was, I came in 1995. I mean, it's yeah. still, it's still a lot of money today in 2020, but in 1995, yeah. $345. I was, and I, I piled all this stuff on. I'm like, I cannot give this person this. T- I felt so bad, but yeah. well, again, here's we talk about. Pre- you could talk about pressure, peer pressure from other officers, and these senior officers are telling me what to do. And I'm like, three hundred and forty-five dollars. That, that, like you said, that's that's money for 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 milk. That's money. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, if they don't pay it, everything you just mentioned, right? They, their insurance goes up. Now they got to take a day off from from work to go to court. All this kind of stuff, and and, and you're doing this stuff, and you could see the kids in the back seat and all. Oh. It's just, it was just heartbreaking to me. And, you know, and if, you know, I, I wonder sometimes is, is that sense of dignity and decency that we have for human beings kind of taught or, or, or taken away from us as police officers, because we're saying pile on a ticket, pile on a ticket. Well, they shouldn't yep. have did this. You know, they should have, they should know to have insurance. People are not driving around without insurance because they don't want to. It's because they can't afford it. Correct. You know, and, and, and so, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It's just a cycle of poverty that, that punishes the poor, that punishes yes. the poor. You know? Absolutely. And, and, and so much of it is training. I think so much of it is um, grant funding. You know, you think about federal grant funding that's passed on um, to the states, then passed on to the counties, then the individual police departments, OTS in California, Office of Traffic and Safety. You know, we used to have tons and tons of grant funding that justified us um, having, for a city our size, we had a uh, traffic bureau that was really large when it was grant funded. And we had, I think it was something between eight and 10 motor officers for a population of 62,000 in our city. And the reason we did it was because we got grants. And the minute the grant stopped, 
they were gone. But as part of those grants, in order to justify the money, we had a pile on those tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's the same thing with narcotics. I mean, we don't fund, the federal government does not fund violence reduction task forces that look at everything from not just enforcement to, you know, uh, prevention, rehabilitation. They fund narcotics task forces very specifically and then then go and the reason why we're taking this money is because it'll help reduce violence in our community because these drug dealers are shooting and killing people without understanding kind of that vicious cycle but that task force is geared on the number of arrests not conviction you know in any grant i i never saw what was your conviction rate it was how many people did you turn through the system yeah more meat for the grinder, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one more thing. I'm going to go back a little bit. The history of policing. Uh, uh, this, this idea that we want to change the future of it. I'm going to give a shameless plug here. I just finished the book. Who? <laughs> reform. Uh, retired police captain's perspective on evolution of law enforcement in America and how to improve the criminal justice system. I know it's a long subtitle there, but um, so I talked a little bit about this, the history of policing. And when I was in the police academy, um, you know, it's not talked about um, yep. the, the slave catching patrols, et cetera. Um, if we're going to change the future of policing, do we really have to uh, reconcile the history of policing, where we came from, how do how we got here essentially, right? We talk about, um, and not only the history of policing, but also, as we just talked about, um, we're, we're just defending corporate interests, which is really the, the, the history of policing, and spe- particularly in the North and in the South, right? Yep. Police officers or slave catchers were, e- e- in the North, either they were uh, making sure that uh, businesses weren't getting, being broken into, and in the South, mm-hmm. obviously catching runaway property, right? So yep. um, do we have to really do a reconcil- reconciliation with that? and move through the cent- move through the, the decades, the centuries, until we get to here, to where we are today, with uh, how, how we got here, and we're still protecting the corporate interests of the rich, right? Again, we talk about all these traffic tickets and the low-level crimes. We're supposed to be getting the, the, the El Chapos and, and all this kind of stuff, but we're getting people with dime bags in their pockets. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> I, you, know, you know, I so agree with you that there is a complete lack of historical education for the modern day policing professional. And for me, I think this is probably the the clearest example is it was not until I started becoming active in, in really in this police reform movement where it, it forced me to go back to school, get a master's degree, it um, uh, finish off my bachelor's degree, uh, get a master's degree, but really delve into historical legislation and history around our drug laws. And I think in an academy setting, if you had 40 hours minimum dedicated to the history of policing, the history of drug laws, you know, the history of of where policing actually came, the good and the bad, you know, is we can look at at, at Sir Robert Peel, and there's good there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, it, it's this is the absence of crime. This is how we should be judged. You know, the police are part of the community. 
if we actually did a 40-hour block on that, I think it would start to transform policing because our younger police officers are actually much more educated than we were in many aspects. I was so appalled when I first started doing my own research on drug law history and looking at the historical legislative record that was filled with racism. That's it. Period. Simple. End of story. And, you know, I, I was born, I don't know if you know, but I was born in Mexico City and I came up as um, in the 1960s. But, you know, historically, law enforcement isn't taught the history of, you know, opium and, her- and opium and heroin were prohibited because of the Chinese, because our legislators in California didn't want Chinese men sleeping with white women. Marijuana is a Mexican issue. Um, it is the legislators and Harry Anslinger and, and other people did a very good job of stigmatizing Mexican immigrants who were coming up here during the Depression to work. Cocaine with black men. You know, you go, and, and, and it's interesting when you start looking at, and I'm not minimizing PCP because we've all had run-ins with people on PCP, but if you think back to, um, you know, the PCP issue that we dealt with and how law enforcement and the media portrayed it relative to black men using PCP, the same way that it was described in early legislation on how it black men using cocaine would be able to overpower law enforcement, that it gave them superhuman strength. You know, and, and so the parallels of how we create moral outrage or, or moral scares around a particular drug are not really about the dangers of the drug. They're about the perceived dangers of a ethnic uh, or, or a demographic that we've been trying to control for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. But then the education needs to come. And I believe that if, um, if we got that education, people would, would certainly think differently. I agree with that. When I was an instructor and I taught uh, human behavior, you know, basically basic psychology, I, I talked about, um, that I always recommended that the new recruits read the book um, by Christian Williams, Our Enemies in Blue. And uh, Oh, interesting. I've never read it. Oh, yeah. You got to read that. He talks about uh, probably... Besides my book that I just wrote, probably the best book about about police work, <laughs> about the history, because he talks about the um, how police unions were formed, um, yeah. how they fought against other unions, right? Yep. Uh, union busting, um, even though they were members of the union themselves. Talk about how they, you know, s- tried to suppress the women's movement. Of, yep. course, of course, the civil rights movement. Um, uh, when blacks tried to join the unions uh, in the 1910s, 1920s, it was the police officers who broke them up, who got them out of there. Uh, talked about the, their involvement in stopping the uh, LGBT rights movement, Stonewall. So, really, really great, good book. Christian Williams, uh, Our Enemies in Blue. I always, I highly recommend that. Highly recommend that. You need to email me both the title of your book and that book. So, I'll follow up and, and I'll read them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Um, um, so we talked about the history, talk about what's going on today. Let's talk about where we go tomorrow. Where's, where's Leap headed tomorrow under your, your tutelage, your leadership there? <laughs> you know, I think for, for me is in, in many aspects, um, Neil Franklin has helped 
form my vision as as I jokingly refer to Neil all the time and is as he's transitioning out I'm transitioning in he I got some really big shoes to fill but mine are going to be high heels they're not going to be <laughs> they're not going to be his big shoes I'm sure I'm sure you'll look nice much nicer in, in yeah, the Neil and, <laughs> and, and yeah exactly and and you know is I really want to focus on a couple different areas. Number one is I think Leap is situated at a very good place that we are going to start moving strategically from not just educating the public and uh, educating staffers, but really on working at different levels to implement model policies that actually has the ability to transform policing or to mitigate and minimize the harms to the criminal justice system, which is why, why um, we should come back and do another episode with uh, just simply on the community responder report, because I, I would really love your input on that. So what we're seeing across the country right now is that there are cities and localities across the nation that are recognizing that they've asked police to do too much. And they want to implement alternatives to 911. So there's the proper resources to not just deal with an issue that's happening in real time, but to provide resources that actually work towards resolving the problem long term. And it could be, you know, it, we're, we're seeing it in different models across the nation. Probably the, the best one that's been talked about uh, recently a lot has been the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon. Mm. And um, CAHOOTS has been uh, around for, I think, a couple decades, maybe longer. But it hasn't been until the last couple years that it's, people are really, you know, hearing about it. And instead of responding police officers to mental health crises or to drug overdoses, they respond civilian clinicians, EMTs, mental health providers. And I, I can't remember the exact stat, but this is about correct, that in um, the last year in Cahoots that they ended up able to divert about 17 to 20% of all law enforcement calls. And only about 1% of the calls required the CAHOOTS people once they got on scene who are very well trained to recognize, hey, I need a cop here. And so there are successful programs like CAHOOTS that need to be scaled up. So that's gonna be part of, of our focus in our group is let's work with cities at the local level who are embracing what reimagining policing may look like in the future. And we're strategically designing their budgets because again, this is now going to be about budgets, right? Mm. You were a captain, you know, you were responsible for designing, implementing and being held accountable for a budget is which again brings me back to we have to be strategic as we scale up front-end resources and we scale down law enforcement resources. They have to be done in the fashion that prevents huge upticks in violence. Because, you know, that's what we're seeing with COVID-19 right now. And it's not a, a, 
a deep policing problem. Um, I think it's a COVID-19 problem. I think that it's a resources stretch because of protests issue and, and other factors, but there has been a significant uptick in violent crime. Not in property crime, not in other places, but we're having more shootings. And so how do we get those resources that aren't just law enforcement resources? I think Baltimore just received some type of grant or funding that is a, a research, empirical research program that basically focuses on the smallest percentage of violent offenders that brings together not just community resources, but community leaders and law enforcement to reduce violent crime. And so it's, um, it, uh, there's a book called Bleeding Out that really talks about the success of this, but it's very time intensive, very intensive on fiscal resources because you have to provide not just, you know, the carrot and the stick, so to speak. It's like you give people an opportunity to stop being a criminal. Yeah. Again, that's a, those are in, those entrenched interests, right? So if mm-hmm. we start scaling back, you know, the 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 motives for people to be um, uh, criminals, and we start hiring more uh, therapists, uh, then officers lose their. I don't want to say lose their jobs, but I mean, you know, that that becomes that becomes a conflict. You know, where do where do we put the money at? And you're right, it's all about budgets. All about budgets. So. Yeah, but you know, we've all seen squeezes in law enforcement budgets throughout the years. I think about it, you know, I've, I've seen two major squeezes in, you know, in the, the 1970s in California, we had Proposition 13 that um, cut back on taxes that went into the government coffers. And there was a squeeze in law enforcement, the size of law enforcement agencies. Then I got hired in the the 1980s when that had been fixed. And then um, we expanded our agency to about 110 officers. And it's down now to about 85 officers with no uptick in crime. So, you know, again, it's about, you know, as a law enforcement professional, as a law enforcement chief executive officer who has a strong command staff that understands that, um, just because we have less police officers, if we invest properly, it makes the police officers we have able to work more efficiently. But it also goes back to how we evaluate police officers, right? So, you know, I think that as part of this reimagining policing, we also have to reimagine and transform how we evaluate the success of law enforcement mm-hmm. and our police officers. Because it used to be, you know, you evaluated people on statistics and community satisfaction. I think it should be based on community satisfaction, you know, uh, support of community uh, concerns that we're not undermining, you know, what the community wants and the absence of crime or the mitigation of crime. Mm. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. Thank you. Uh, so I think that's it. That's all the questions I had. 
I appreciate you coming back on. Once again, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to hold you to that community response report, and I, I definitely want to check that out. And uh, I'll definitely have you. And if Amos wants, Amos wants to oh, come yeah. on. Oh, yeah. I'm going okay. to bring Amos on. Yeah, okay. Because he, right. he, he, <laughs> he, did, he did the research. And he, we did we did it with the Center for American Progressives, and a very very well done report. And and there there were some things that I think we had to I don't want to call it speculation, but because we did looked at at nine one one responses, and because you know notoriously law enforcement data is bad, yeah. <laughs> you know, or it, non-existent <laughs> or non-existent is, you know, you have to look at the, the data that we got and, and say, you know, these are things that we believe that don't necessarily have to go out to law enforcement. Right. And so, right. so one, of, one of the things that I think is really important is, is to, as we work towards the future of criminal justice reform, we all know we have way too many laws on the books. Yeah. We, we have to start recognizing that um, tickets and fees and fines and jail and incarceration isn't the only solution to our community safety problems. And we have to be inclusive of everyone, whether you're suffering from, you know, a chronic substance use disorder to the multimillionaire that works in our city in order to understand what communities, what, what public safety, what community health and public safety should be. We need to be inclusive of everyone. Those are behemoths, particularly the, the moneyed interest behind the tickets. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. pays for prosecutors. I mean, you're talking about prosecutors' jobs or special courts. This is yeah. all, this is all money. You know, the prosecutor is yeah. getting, a, you know, a, a $150,000 a year. You know, he wants to keep his job and all, all the paperwork and all the, you know the, the behemoth behind the criminal justice system. It's not just police officers, but it's but it's everyone who's involved from yep. you know the janitors and every, you know he's talking about you're talking about their livelihood and that that becomes a, a problem. I mean, we can reallocate everything else. We could try to you know work it into everybody keeps their job or, or transfer to a different job, but it's 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 such an uphill battle. It's such an uphill battle. It, it, it's it's a it's a hard uh, fight, and I'm glad you're there to traverse that very difficult road with us. How's yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I mean, because we're affecting people's lives. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I thought as a little kid, you know, I, I was 13, 14, just thinking, you know, we only get one of these. You you know, mm-hmm. you only get one, and to spend it fighting tickets, to spend it in jail, incarcerated, you know, spending 20 years, you know. Uh, in, in behind bars and then have to come out and face the stigma. And I was, I, like I said, I was young when I was thinking this and I, I'm 47 today. And I think about how many people have, uh, who are my age, who have been through, you know, they've done 25 years in prison already. You know, I did 20, 24 years in the police department. They've done 25 years in prison, come out and are still have no prospects for life. And that's, that's just a sad way to be. And, um, yeah. and, and it's, as we just mentioned, it's, it's about poverty. It's about, uh, uh, you know, keeping them in a certain place. And it's really just, really just sad, really just sad. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks again. I, I, I love being on your podcast. It's fabulous. I'll make certain it gets out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you would just, uh, just send me your, your, uh, your address, uh, email me your address and I'll send you a book. I'll send you, a, um, you don't have to buy my book. So, oh, fabulous. I, yeah. I would really appreciate it, but, but yeah. I'll, I'll email you my address and then you send me that link on uh, the Christian Williams book because I'm, yeah. I'm very interested. Yeah. Really, really great book. I highly recommend it. So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. All that kind of good stuff. And, uh, and we'll take talk care. Soon? Absolutely. Absolutely. I reach out sometime. I'm booked up until April. 
So you know, that'll be good. Um, so we'll have another great conversation. I'm sure you'll be taking leap for leaps and bounds up. <laughs> upward Holy and onward. Cow, you're booked up till April already for podcasts. Uh, yeah, because I only I only do them I only do them once a week. So I mean, I only release once a week, one a week. Yeah. So this this is not going to be you know released for a little bit. So, but yeah, I, it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good so far, you know. And there's a lot of other people uh, I'm trying to get to. So, you know. Hey, and and so you know, um, it is um, one of the things that I'm also looking at. Um, we're in process of implementing kind of strategic planning, and this is uh, you know off the this is off the record type stuff is um, as part of our strategic planning for the future is uh, is I'm working on identifying some of our speakers to come in and do presentations for kind of a subcommittee that's going that we're going to be working on on kind of the the direction of our speakers bureau, so to speak. Mm. And, and so I'm trying to identify people that I think are really good. And, and I hope that I can reach out to you and, and, and say, Hey, um, you know, a, would you like to do work on this subcommittee? Cause it's going to be work, uh, or come in and do a presentation about how to better engage our speakers. Because one of the things that, that I think we're going to do and move on towards the future is also kind of we've recognized that our speakers aren't necessarily just speakers that we're underutilizing them. And as we talk about moving into implementation of model policies is having like a convening of maybe we're trying to figure out how to name it. That's the hard part, but is how to better utilize the massive expertise of our speakers that we have across the nation. Yeah. So I don't know if you're interested or not. I definitely am. Anything you need okay. from me. Yeah. Okay. So let me know. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, because that, that'll start sometime in 2021. So we have a year. Um, we, we're literally just finishing off our strategic planning. Next year is going to be about the subcommittees. And then year two and three is implementation that hopefully sustains the organization for the next, you know, five plus years. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, there's some good stuff going on. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. we're in good hands. We're in good hands. Thanks. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. I'll, I'll email you my address. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Bye. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.